What we've just heard from the Leader of the Opposition and the Leader of the National Party are the most pathetic contributions I've heard in such a weighty debate in my 22 years here. Under cover of darkness, American, British and Saudi warplanes rained destruction on military targets across Iraq and Kuwait. I, I do not believe as an issue of principle that one generation can assume responsibility for the acts and deeds of an earlier generation. The national buyback of guns is expected to cost every Australian taxpayer up to $50. Hi and welcome back to Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. This is episode 5, part 2. Now, last time we left off in Australia in the lead up to the 1996 election. Now, most people would be familiar with the guy who went on to win that election. Um, of course, that is John Howard. But it may not have been him who, who led the Liberals to that 96 election because for a brief spell there, Alexander Downer was actually the opposition leader. Now, people might remember Downer more recently for his um, antics, I suppose, in the United Kingdom, having a drink with a Trump advisor, um, which then kicked off the Russia investigation in the United States. So when Alexander Downer is in the news now, it's usually around speculation of whether Donald Trump is going to send him to Guantanamo Bay. But that is kind of by the by. I think Chloe um, Downer didn't last very long as opposition leader. Keating kind of destroyed him pretty quickly. And we had instead John Howard as the leader of the opposition. Yes. So John Howard had previously been leader of the Liberals from 1985 to 1989. And he wasn't successful in that, in that position. Howard was a true conservative. And I think today we remember him for, you know, his kind of the conservatism by stealth that he introduced into Australian public life and that has left a very long legacy with, still with us today. But in that 1996 election, one of the, the most interesting thing about Howard is that he wasn't outwardly ideological. He presented as small a target as possible in that election, which proved to be quite a good calculation because he was basically able to ride on public resentments of Keating to win the election and win it to win it quite decisively with a 40 seat majority. Now, I don't know about you, Chloe, but I don't really remember the 96 election. You know, I'm, I'm sure I kind of noticed a little bit of what ha was happening, but my 10 year old brain was maybe focused elsewhere. Is it the same for you? Um, I do have some very dim memories of that 1996 election. And that's largely because I distinctly recall my parents being very, very upset by John Howard's election. I actually, I went back to my mum yesterday when I was trying to sort out my thoughts ahead of this podcast and I asked her about those, you know, those sort of why Keating lost. And I think it's quite, it's quite striking the response she gave me when we compare that with what we've spoken about before in the previous instalment of this episode about how Keating is remembered fondly because of his, you know, his wit and his, you know, his style and his, I guess his kind of rebarbative Okay, his rebarbative political conduct. By 1996, people resented him. They resented what him calling the recession in the early 90s, the recession we had to have, because 
they saw that as, you know, kind of a cold dismissal of what were very real struggles that people were facing. There was also a lot of, you know, this, this resentment was quite concentrated in, among middle class people who were suffering from interest rate rises. Um, this conversation also led into the territory of talking about property prices in the early 1990s, which was quite depressing. Um, and really this sense that people had had enough of labour and that their experiments, and that includes their experiments in foreign policy and also in Aboriginal rights, had to had to come to an end. The other thing we can't underrate is that people didn't forgive Keating for his stabbing in the back of Bob Hawke, who was an enormously popular prime minister. So Keating was personally disliked. He was regarded as this remote, suspicious, aloof intellectual and ultimately untrustworthy. Yeah, and I, I think that's important to remember, Chloe, because we've, we've spoken at length, I think, in our, our reflections on the 1990s about how it's often regarded with some nostalgia as this kind of golden age of, of civility politics. But but that is far from the truth. No, absolutely. And it's also interesting to think that the, the Keating Hawk brawling, which we didn't really get into in the previous instalment, which was, you know, a significant part of politics in the very early 90s, but that was quite mild and was quite contained compared to what we see now. But that also, as I've said, that kind of proved electorally decisive for Keating in a way that, that you know, these constant, you know, this constant churn of prime ministers and factional infighting doesn't seem to have the same effect now. Like, I feel like the electorate has become kind of jaded and also kind of inured to political brawling. We're just, we, we, we hate it, but we're also used to it. We accept it as a part of political life now. That's right. And I think that's a major difference between kind of now and the mid 1990s, because part of Howard's promise, I think, was that he would end that, you know, he would usher in an era of calmness and of stability, a kind of, you know, an end of history, if you will. I think so. I think that we could say that Howard promised the end of history in Australia in 1996. The thing that jumps out not just at me but I'm sure jumps out at a lot of people who have a sort of make a cursory observance of the Howard years is that Australia was quite unusual among Anglophone democracies and that it was kind of an island of conservative stability while as we've discussed before the US and the UK were led by young centre-left governments. That's right. And and Howard, you know, could not have been more different, I think, to the to the Clintons and the Blairs of the Western world. Um, he was, well, for one thing, you know, he's much older. He'd been around in politics for a long time. As we know, he'd been opposition leader. He was, in fact, treasurer for some time under the government of Malcolm Fraser. And he, I think, again, in contrast to Blair and Clinton, he, and Keating as well, it should be said, he presented himself as this kind of boring every man you know he's kind of nice and and affable but he's a completely non-threatening dork in like a yellow and green tracks tracksuit you know he's not wearing any double-breasted zenia suits thanks very much um so he's kind of as i said he's sort of non-threatening and early in his prime ministership you know in his time as treasurer i think he's not widely regarded as particularly competent but then of course he would go on to surprise many people by leading a government that would last in office for, for more than a decade. Oh, no, and I, and I think that that's, um, I suspect that that's, that's a lesson that Scott Morrison has quite consciously taken up for his prime ministership. So I think, you know, seeing competence as perhaps a political illusion and seeing that you can just as easily win the confidence or at least the acceptance of the public 
by presenting a small target, being non-threatening and making people feel comfortable. And I think that is that is one of Howard's major political legacies. And I guess that's kind of our job in this instalment of our episode on Australia to examine Howard's domestic legacy and, and his legacy internationally. And I thought maybe we could start with um, his domestic legacy. And one particular issue that I think always, I mean, it comes up for me quite frequently, but it also comes up, I think, with people on the left, particularly in the centre left, when they're talking about Howard as kind of the one good thing he did. And that, of course, is Howard's actions in the aftermath of the mass murder at Port Arthur in Tasmania. The nightmare unfolded around half past two this afternoon. A lone gunman armed with a high-powered rifle entered the Port Arthur historic site and began firing randomly, gunning down tourists and setting fire to buildings. And that's something you've had to speak about before, isn't it? Yeah, all the time, in fact. You know, Howard's actions in the wake of Port Arthur come up all the time when I'm talking about gun control in the US, which happens more often than I would like. So if we go back to that time in Australia, it's April in 1996, and a 28-year-old man, Martin Bryant, shoots and kills 35 people and injured 23. This massacre is still described in the press. You know, I was doing some research in advance of this episode, and it's still described in the press as the worst mass murder in Australia's history, which I think is a very interesting framing because without minimising the catastrophic effect of this event... It only counts as the worst mass murder in Australian history if you, if all you think about is the murder of white people. So this, as I said, happens in April of 1996. Howard had been sworn in as Prime Minister in March, so he's very fresh as Prime Minister. And what he does in the aftermath of this massacre is introduce something called the National Firearms Agreement, which outlaws automatic and semi-automatic rifles, um, as well as pump-action shotguns. More than half a million weapons were turned in as part of the government buyback scheme that came as part of this agreement. So that's why when you see kind of discussions of Howard's gun laws, you see literal skips or or, uh, rubbish dumps full of firearms. And of course, I think it's important when we're talking about the US comparison, um, which I do, as I said, quite often to say that there's no sunset clause in this agreement. It still stands today. With the government determined to get guns out of the community, we're all being asked to contribute. Owners of illegal guns will be able to hand over their weapons in return for cash, estimated to cost up to $800 million. And it's one that comes up in discussion of gun control in the US because it was so successful in reducing gun violence in Australia. And it's one that Americans think about all the time. You know, um, my mum has, has a famous kind of family story of being cornered on a fishing boat in Alaska by an American man demanding to understand how she could possibly feel safe in her country when the government took away our guns. So this, this is a global legacy, I think, that, that Howard has left Australians. And it won, it's one that came very early on in his prime ministership. I'm interested to get into Howard's economic reforms or, you know, I guess the sort of creeping reforms that, that took place in the late 1990s, partly because we often hear this, this number that gets bandied around about, you know, Australia having gone through... 25 years straight of economic growth and Paul Keating is very very quick to claim that as the legacy of his and Bob Hawke's governments but obviously John Howe presided over those years of economic growth and it's inter- it would be interesting to reflect on that because I think I'd, I'd 
don't I think it's quite safe to say that those years of uninterrupted economic growth have now come to a very sudden end. You're right. There is there is a lot of ongoing debate about exactly who is responsible for this kind of golden era of economic growth. And I don't, I don't think it's an argument that's ever going to be resolved to anybody's satisfaction. I think what I will say, if, if we go back to our conversation about the nostalgia for the 1990s, and especially nostalgia for Keating, you know, you often see people writing about reforming governments and a, and a wish for governments that were brave enough like Hawke and Keating to um, embark on radical reforms. I think that kind of obscures Howard's economic legacy because while Howard kind of presented himself as you know a conservative as not changing anything as a, as calmness amid a global storm Howard actually embarked on really significant economic reforms so Howard oversaw things like the privatization of Telstra which is something of course we're grappling with today in our battles with the NBN and our working from home struggles. Um, He also very early on in his government began a complete restructure of industrial relations in this country. When I think of Howard era industrial relations reform, my immediate thoughts turn to work choices. So in 2007, which is largely seen as Howard massively overreaching. And that was a big part of the reason why Kevin Rudd was able to sweep to victory in that 2007 election. But you're saying that this work choices wasn't it. It was the the end point of something, wasn't it? It absolutely was. Work choices was the culmination of a project that the Howard government started basically from the moment they took office, as I said, with this kind of complete restructuring of industrial relations. And that began with legislation that basically introduced enterprise bargaining in 96, 97. So that's when employees and employers negotiate at the kind of firm level around their wage agreements and things like that instead of what had been industry-wide negotiations and award rates. So that's that's a significant reform that comes very early on in the Howard government. And Howard also introduces things like work for the doll. So a lot of the, I guess, economic issues that we are grappling with today, things like industrial relations, things like the role of Centrelink and payments like the Dole have their origins, I think, in the mid-1990s and Howard's industrial relations reform. Yeah, and that was absolutely accompanied by a a transformation in political rhetoric, which I think still stays with us, especially in debates around things like JobKeeper, around deservingness and who deserves economic support and what, what the purpose of what the purpose of labour is in a national economy. No way that uh, GST will ever be part of our policy. Never, ever. Never, ever. It's dead. And, and I mean, the other huge thing, of course, that Howard did when it comes to our national economy is introduce the, the GST. So we spoke about that, Chloe, when we were speaking about John Hewson. This uh, had been a long project of the Liberal Party in Australia to introduce a goods and ter- services tax. And Howard finally did that in the year 2000, when he introduced a 10% GST. That's right. And look, we could do a whole episode about the political brawls around the GST and particularly the demise of the Democrats, which is one thing that has been lost from the 1990s and has never been recovered, which is curious in itself. I guess I kind of alluded to this in the last instalment, but there is the political argument around a GST that kind of subsided but I think is still with us today is about the difference between a regressive regressive and progressive taxation so a broad-based GST that is attached to you know the mundane essentials of life that will disproportionately 
be paid, well, disproportionately compared to income, they will be paid by the less well-off members of society. Paired with income tax and you know income tax cuts, and also you know the range of middle class welfare policies that were introduced by the Howard government. We can talk about negative gearing here. We can also talk about about franking credits. What that meant was you know kind of a rebalancing of the scales and a loss of a sense of reciprocity and mutual support and equity from Australian life embodied in, you know, what looks like a very dry issue of taxation. And I, I think that points to one of Howard's enduring legacies in our political system. The other one, I think the other really significant one, of course, that we haven't spoken about yet is One Nation and Pauline Hanson. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, Pauline Hanson, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to, I would hate to spend too much time on her, but I don't think we can avoid her because she is still a major player in Australian political life. And that started in the 1990s. So, and tell, tell us all a little bit about Pauline Hanson. That's right. She did. She, she roared to national fame in the mid-1990s. In fact, in the 96 election, that was when she was first elected to the House of Representatives as the member for Oxley in Queensland. A lot of listeners, I think, will remember at least parts of her maiden speech to Parliament because that is the one in which she said that she thought Australia was in danger of being swamped by Asians. And the speech, I think, is important as well because it was also rife with phrases like she used phrases, and I'm quoting, like reverse racism and political correctness. She also spent a long time complaining about the privileges Aboriginals enjoy over other Australians. Again, that's a quote. And so Pauline Hanson, I think, is is part of that backlash that we spoke about earlier, Chloe, against Paul Keating and his focus on Aboriginal rights. So Hanson said things like, I draw the line when told I must pay and continue paying for something that happened over 200 years ago, which aligns almost directly with John Howard's approach to Aboriginal rights as well. And that's where I think it's important to reflect on Pauline Hanson's legacy, because as we know, she's she's roared back to national prominence in 2016, um, what an auspicious year, when she was elected to the Senate for Queensland. Um, Often I think Hanson is seen as a lone figure, One Nation is seen as a lone figure, but it's important to recognise that in the mid-1990s, instead of fighting against Pauline Hanson, Howard essentially pandered to her. And I think there's, there's an interesting comparison to be made between the Liberal Party then and the Liberal Party now, in that you say that John Howard pandered to her, and what he what I would say he was able to do was he was kind of able to externalize the liberals racism problem and kind of neutralize it within his own party by displacing it to Pauline Hanson and to One Nation. So One Nation really became kind of a lodestar for, you know, disaffected, racist, rural conservatives and its collapse in the 2000s. And, you know, it's, it's, it's come back since then, but it's, it's collapse meant that those sorts of forces could then be redistributed amongst the Liberal Party and the Nationals. And that's part of the reason why, along with Pauline Hanson in the Senate today, we also see, you know, these incredibly powerful racist backbenchers in our in our federal government who are able to exercise influence out of all proportion to what they to the numbers that they actually represent. And that Chloe, that kind of leached into Australian culture as well, didn't it? Yes, and again, this is a way. This is this is a way in which Howard was able to displace racism and neutralize it. As no, I wouldn't say. I mean, I suppose neutralize is kind of the wrong word for this. But he was able to displace racism to culture 
and that enabled him to, I guess, kind of use it as a political tool. So what I'm talking about are the culture wars, which started in the 1990s. I think it's interesting to say that Francis Fukuyama had almost nothing to say about colonisation and the legacies of colonialism, which reared their head in the 1990s in Australia. Yeah, I think that is really interesting because, of course, Howard had kind of promised the the end of history in Australia when he was elected in a very Fukuyama-like way. But, of course, the culture wars are are essentially about our understanding of Australian history. Is that right? That's No, that's absolutely right. So this kind of, the Howard era culture, war, culture wars kind of kick off with the, the bringing them home report into the stolen generations. And so when I said, so this is a good illustration of what I mean when I say that Howard was displacing this to culture. So Howard didn't really take it up as a cause, excepting, of course, his steadfast refusal to say sorry to the stolen generations. This was kind of, taken up by Quadrant, which is a conservative magazine in Australia, which made a real cause out of denying the gravity of what was in the report. It claimed that child removals were for Aboriginal children's benefit, and there was absolutely no countenancing of what I think should be described as a genocide. Meanwhile, we also saw the Australian really start to kick off its absolute derangement, which is still with us today. Um, One of the interesting facts I found out in researching this episode was that in 1993, the Australian of all newspapers had declared Eddie Mabo Australian of the Year. So, yeah, so this is what I mean. Like, Howard is sort of enabling this this growing right-wing media sphere to take up the baton in cultural issues, and he turned it into a distraction from politics. I think this... If anywhere in Australian, you know, in the the absolute mess of Australian politics that we have today, I think that this is where our disillusionment begins, and I think that it taints everything. I think it it absolutely does, and and that is something that we will talk about in our next instalment of this episode when we focus on one of Howard's other legacies, which is connected deeply to the issues of racism that we have been talking about um, when we focus on Howard's legacy when it comes to asylum seekers and the ongoing toxic issue of immigration in Australian politics. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.